1: Terrific guests with us uh, this evening, Alex McNeil and uh, Rick Osmond. Um, hope everyone had a great weekends. Mothman Festival was fantastic. Um, hopefully get more shows coming out of uh, that, that festival. Uh, lots of great people down there. Um, those of us in the alternative history field deal with the efforts to debunk our work from academics I, I, I've dealt with that you know I've had to deal with uh, people who wanted history to be the way they imagine it to be not based on the artifacts um, see so, you know, I' Worked with people who were convinced that they had Atlantis on their property. They had uh, probably a recent native uh, tribes, Cairn. Uh, I I really doubt Atlantis was located in Lincoln County, West Virginia. Um, I've dealt with those who had severe case of pareidolia, But in other cases, there are just so many holes in the academics' theories. Uh, Things just don't add up, that the doubts persist. Alex McNeil is joining us for the first hour to discuss the Shakespeare authorship controversy and to discuss the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference coming up on – uh, Friday, October 11th, 12th, and 13th. Alex, is that right?
2: No, it's the following week. It's the oh, uh, it's the week uh, of the 19th and 20th. It starts on whatever that Thursday is, Thursday the
1: 17th. 17th. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I had, had the wrong date. Uh, okay, the, the conference is October 17th, 18th, and 19th. Um, okay, Alex... Um, yeah, this is a broad ca- category, and there are many points of views that need to be heard. You know, we covered uh, a variety of topics last week with uh, uh, Ramon Jimenez uh, looking at the uh, evolution of the writing of uh, know, like five five plays. Uh, there, there's so much that still needs to be understood about this subject that we want to uh, keep exploring the uh, topic as we get closer to uh, the conference. And Alex uh, earned his law degree from Boston University and uh, recently retired as a court administrator. He is also editor of the uh, e-book, The Contested Year. And you can learn more about his interests by going to the ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org website. So, hi, Alex. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, Mark. Hi, Barbara.
1: And she she yeah, she's on on mute while she does all her secret producing
2: stuff. Oh, okay. All right. she,
1: well, yeah. She, she she's still there.
2: Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Let me make one real uh, quick correction. I'm a graduate of Boston College Law School, not Boston oh, University Law School. Oh. Sorry, Boston people coach. frequently confuse the two, but you know the joke is Boston College. It's uh, not a college, and it's not in Boston, but <laughs> it is a real place. It's located just out uh, most of Most of Boston College is located outside the city limits of Boston, and since it is a university, uh, it's not technically just a college. <laughs>
1: Okay. Well, t- thank you for cor- correcting me twice already, but well, I already screwed this one uh, th- th- up already. Um, but I'll get, I'll get better. Um, you know, what is one of the interesting facets of the uh, authorship controversy is – that this topic has attracted the attention of you know, J- justices uh, John Paul Stevens and Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, you know, these aren't. Uh, I started off talking about you know t- t- some of the alternative theorists, uh, uh, history theorists who um, you know, may have some crackpot theories, uh, but. You know when you have some of these, you know, really high-profile people like Supreme Court justices, you know, taking an interest in, in this case, you know, they're, they're very accustomed. You know, their their job is basically listening to uh, both sides of an issue, weighing weighing the evidence. It, 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 you know, they we're captivated by this uh subject uh, uh, what did uh some of you know the uh countries leading lawyers like yourself have to say about th- this topic
2: well mark i think you hit the nail on the head uh just about 30 seconds ago in your introduction to the question, that it is, it's a question of evidence, and that's really uh, why the Shakespeare authorship question seems to have appeal to people like myself who are lawyers. Uh, You know, there's many lawyers over probably the last hundred years have been interested in the question. It's also interesting in, in our organization, the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, we have quite a few engineers, we have scientists, uh, people like that. What, the way I like to put it is the question, regardless of how you come down on it, it, it the examining the question is something that's of interest to people who t- tend to come from fact-based backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are used to looking at what is a fact, what is not a fact, or another way of saying it is, you know, what is evidence and what is not evidence and how do we weigh evidence? What inferences can we draw from combinations of facts or from evidence, or in Shakespeare of Stratford's case, and by the way, there, there was a real human being named William Shakespeare or Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon, nobody's uh, denying that. Uh, in his case, what's very, very interesting, particularly to us lawyers, is that there is an absence of evidence of a lot of things about his life where you should expect to see some evidence, And the question is, what can you draw from the negative? What can you draw from the absence? One of the questions is, what can you draw from the absence of of evidence? And so in general terms, as I said, that's why it seems to be a topic that uh, lawyers and other scientists and others like that uh, will have some interest in because they didn't already come into it with a bias that many people who will say were English lit majors have who come from a different background, you know, a different academic background and a different form of intellectual training. And I'm not uh, disparaging that kind of training. I'm not by any sense, I don't mean to imply that at all. There's some very, very, very intelligent, uh, brilliant people who are English professors and who have great insight uh, into interpreting Shakespeare's plays. Uh, So, so I also want to make that clear as well but in terms of uh, not being wedded to the traditional story of this rags to riches background of somebody being born, you know, in a fairly poor circumstances in a town that was a three or four day trip away from London with, you know, uh, very little access to uh, intellectual training on his own and education. You know, how he, without clear uh, evidentiary background, how he acquired the tools to become the greatest uh, voice in the history of English literature is indeed quite a mystery. And you should expect to be able to find some corroborating evidence to show how he accomplished this. Another thing we say, you know, people often uh, accuse authorship doubters, particularly those like myself, who believe that the Earl of Oxford is the best uh, alternative candidate. We're accused of snobbism, uh, of saying, well, you're saying that only a a Lord could have uh, been able to accomplish this. That's not quite right. You know, I think you know, and all of us know, people do manage to accomplish great things in their lives who come from extraordinarily humble backgrounds. There's no question that people can transcend uh, uh, obstacles and difficulties. The the point we make with William Shakespeare of Stratford, we're not saying that he couldn't have done it. What we are saying is he couldn't have done it without leaving any evidence that he did do so.
1: Okay. And you your, uh the you know the, the fellowship also di- discusses uh Charlie Chaplin's uh interest in this as well as, as you know a hundred years later uh sir derek Jacoby, uh
2: yeah mark Rylance. yeah,
1: it, yeah it, uh you know it's seventy years ago orson wells is involved uh in uh, studying this um historical mystery it, you know they they are bringing insights from the uh, craft as well so you know just to uh, work in you know what people uh, academics are saying about the subject as well as people who work uh, have had a long history in in the theater like Derek Jacoby's like one of the all-time, you know, great names in Shakespearean drama. And he's up there with Sir Lawrence Olivier. You know what you said all, you know, you know just uh, you know, about the facts and what people from different professions at different time periods are all saying. Are uh, coming to the same conclusions.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting, as you said, the people who are in the uh, theater craft, some themselves, who, those who've taken the time to explore the question, you know, certainly find it interesting. And, and some of them certainly have been persuaded, but like Derek Jacobi in particular. Another person you probably, uh, you probably don't have his name at your fingertips, but an American actor. Remember Michael Chiklis from uh, The Shield and also the old uh, TV series The Commish?
1: Uh. Uh, I'm not, I I'm not saying well, some of your, some of your yeah, you're old, but they, uh, that that was before my time, I think. Well
2: some of your listeners <laughs> will certainly know Mike, who Michael Chiklis is and uh he is a he he's an absolutely convinced of the case for uh, the Earl of Oxford. So there are some American actors as well. Keanu Reeves, uh just said oh. in an interview online, uh that he's an Oxfordian. So they're you know, there's certainly a well known American name.
1: Okay, yeah, that's uh yeah Keanu's a little bit more my contemporary on that one but yeah uh and, and it, 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 it's just very interesting and you know uh, when when uh Ramon was on with this last week he's saying you know Mark Twain wrote a whole book on uh the subject yeah the last
2: uh, thing that apparently the last thing that Mark Twain wrote just uh, within the, a year before he died was a little, it's not quite a book-length thing. It's a sort of, what would you call it, a bookload or a novelette. It's called Is Shakespeare Dead? Uh, And it has Mark Twain's typical humor. Mark Twain, at that time, the case for the Earl of Oxford, had not really been put forth yet. So Twain did not have a, a specific alternative candidate, but Twain was absolutely convinced that it was not Shakespeare of Stratford. And speaking of that, uh, to uh, plug our uh, our conference is coming up in Hartford, Connecticut, um, next month, weekend of October uh, 18th, 19th and 20th. Uh, the reason we chose Hartford, Connecticut is because that is where the Mark Twain House and Museum is located, and that's where our conference is taking place. It's going to be at the Twain House, right in downtown Hartford, and on Saturday night, October, I think that's the 19th, uh, a Canadian actor named Keir uh, Cutler is going to do his one-man show of Twain's Is Shakespeare Dead? You know, he's done it before. I've seen it before. It's an excellent, excellent presentation. That'll be open to the public, uh, and it's a modest ticket price to get in. But uh, in case somebody happens to be in the Hartford, Connecticut area on Saturday, October 19th, Saturday evening, the 19th, and doesn't want to go to our whole conference, uh I think they would very much be entertained by seeing Keir Cutlers one man show about Twain's uh is Shakespeare dead uh book.
1: Okay, and, and Alex, you you, know, you started the show off talking about the importance of evidence and also you know what we don't know and yeah, you, know, you you are an editor for you know, this uh, really fascinating ebook uh the contested year and uh you know Mark Anderson is uh, another one of your uh e- editors yes it, uh, uh, on that project uh, he has a, a really interesting Book Shakespeare by Another Name: The Life of Edward De Vere, Earl of Oxford, and the Man Who Was Shakespeare. Um, Yeah, this book. um, You can um, give us a little bit of background on why the book was written, but the, the contested year was. Uh, claims that 1606 was a very important year in Shakespeare's uh, literary career. Um,
2: yeah, let me let me let me jump yeah. in. I think okay. I would, you want to go. The, our book, Contested Year, was written in response to really the two books that James Shapiro of uh, Columbia University has written. James Shapiro is probably the leading American Shakespeare scholar, at least in terms of uh, reputation and at least in terms of media availability. You know, if there's a question about Shakespeare, the usual uh, journalistic sources will put in a call to James Shapiro for his opinion on whatever the issue du jour is. So he's got the name uh, and, and he's got the reputation. Uh, he t- And as I said, he teaches Shakespeare at Columbia University. So he wrote in... Uh, I think around 2000, he's written two books around 2011 or 12 or maybe I, I don't have the exact year. He wrote a book called Contested Will, uh, which purported to look to, purported to be a quote unbiased look at the Shakespeare authorship question. Uh, and then he has a chapter on, e- on each of the several. Candidates, leading candidates have been put forth over the last, you know, century or so as the alternative Shakespeare, you know, from Francis Bacon to uh, the Earl of Rutland to Oxford. And then, you know, he's kind of purports to demolish each of those cases and then ends up with his book resting solidly uh, on the fact that it's got to be William Shakespeare of Stratford. I will also interject in connection with that book. He did not speak to one single Oxfordian. He refused to have a conversation with any Oxfordian. He would not answer emails when he was contacted by any Oxfordian. And he said, please do not contact me any further. So he did not go into that with what I will call an open mind. He went into it with his mind already made up. Then let's move to the second book that he wrote. The second book that he wrote is the more recent one. It came out maybe three years ago, again, I could be off, it might be four or five years ago. It's called um, 1606, The Year of Lear, I think that is the title of it. And in that, he purports to talk about the actual calendar year 1606, and what an important year that was in the development of William Shakespeare, the the playwright and, and poet because it's uh, Shapiro's view that two of Shakespeare's greatest plays, or actually three of them, uh, Macbeth and King Lear and Anthony and Cleopatra were all uh, originated and created during that particular uh, time period, No, more or less, Let's, you know, give or take a few months. The subtext in his picking 1606 though is something that he doesn't mention in that book at all, which is he never mentions the Earl of Oxford in that book because the Earl of Oxford died in 1604. So if James Shapiro can make his case that Shakespeare of Stratford created his greatest works in 1605, 1606, and early 1607, he's he's proven his case without even having to utter the word Oxford. So uh, we all think there was a subtext uh in in that book so three of us uh decided to refute that 1606 book with uh our own counter book called contested year and we got i think about 20 or 21 people each to write a chapter uh refuting one of uh shapiro's chapters uh so that's what that's all about we think we did a pretty good job it has not gotten a lot of publicity Uh, You know, we didn't, uh, you know, it was self published, it doesn't have the, you know, the big cloud of a major publisher behind it. And it certainly has gotten very little notice, but I'm glad you're aware of it. And if you've taken a look at it, I guess, as you said, I hope you found it, I hope you found it interesting. But it, it, it goes to a number of issues. You know, the fact that mainstream English department academics do not want to touch this question. Uh, You know, they're perfectly happy with their own construct. Um, and, and you know, I get that. I understand it. nobody likes to have their core beliefs challenged. And if you've spent your entire professional career uh, writing books and teaching classes based on a biography of somebody from Stratford-on-Avon, who was born in 1564 and died in 1616 and must have lived such and such a life, uh, you can't. It, you can't go near a competing construct that doesn't involve your man uh you know that's part of that is is human nature as i said nobody likes very few people almost nobody likes to have their core beliefs challenged and you know, this is in
1: 1606 is an important year in According to Dr. Shapiro,
2: yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. it was was an important year in British history as well. I don't mean to just be And you
1: have in 1605 the gunpowder plot that's is still is discussed. Uh, yeah. Today I mean that's a major terrorist uh, plot foiled uh, then yeah. he he contends that you know, these three plays were written in 1606 following the gunpowder plot. Uh, you know probably most of us have to read those three plays to get through high school
2: right or at least two of them yeah
1: yeah yeah at least two two of the three.
2: Well, the nice yes. thing about Macbeth is that it's short. You know, that's why yes. I think that's one reason yes. they offer it in usually 11th through 12th grade, because of all Shakespeare's plays, it's either the shortest or the second shortest. But let's right. talk specifically about about Macbeth. The okay. link of James Shapiro's argument for 1606 being the year that Macbeth was was created is because, as you said, because he sees echoes of the gunpowder plot reflected in the plot and in the lines of macbeth again for some of your listeners who might not be familiar with the gunpowder plot in uh the fall of 165 there apparently was a plot by some uh well let's call them 17th century terrorists uh to blow up parliament building you know with barrels of gunpowder that's why it's called the gunpowder plot uh agents of the crown of robert cecil who was the king's chief minister were able to find out about this plot and, uh, you know, curtail it before anything bad happened. And uh, they rounded up several of the conspirators who were quickly tried uh, and tortured and put to very, very gruesome deaths uh, by the state. And in connection with their trials, and and some of the uh, people who were accused and convicted in the gunpowder plot were Roman Catholic, devout Roman Catholics. And at their trials, uh, in defense, when they were asked certain questions, uh, they would cite the doc, what's called the doctrine of equivocation. And that means, uh, to Roman Catholics at the time, to a devout Roman Catholic, it was a sin to tell a lie. And so, if you were asked uh, some question like, "Are you a Roman Catholic sympathizer?", uh, you couldn't say, and you, and if you really were it would be a sin to say no so you would try to come up with some other kind of answer uh that would be not quite a li- a lie but you know uh, that but wouldn't quite be telling the truth as well and that's known as the doctrine of equivocation and the doctrine of equivocation as i said was you know in the news uh, during the trial of the uh, gunpowder plot conspiracists, because a number of them invoked that uh Uh, that defense. However, the doctrine of equivocation goes way, way back and was known and was used in other uh, treason trials as early as the 1580s and again in the early 1590s. So just because there's a reference in a play to equivocation doesn't necessarily mean that it has to date as late as 1605, because it could be 20 or more years uh, earlier that those, uh, that that same doctrine uh, was used. And it could be that that's where the reference comes from. So that's one of the points we tried to make in our book contested year is that you can't hang your hat on equivocation and just say, well, case proved because the gunpowder plot terrorists uh, use the doctrine of equivocation in their defense.
1: Okay. Well, in, similarity uh yeah you know, following the gunpowder plot the uh publication su- supposed publication of this you know, these three masterworks uh all you know, produced within one year you, know, you also have the uh, uh you know there's a plague outbreak in london
3: uh
1: yeah, you know, you're saying, well, you can't, ha- ha- you know, ha- hang your hat on, yeah, you know, just this uh, uh, doctrine of e- equivocation from just 1605. Yeah, you, you know, the, you know to to make the the publication of th- this group of plays, uh, you know, come out at at this one period, yeah, you, you know, the uh play, you know, there there was the outbreak of the uh plague in 1608 but yeah there was also one um you know about 15 years earlier as, as well so you know, you need to take take a look at some of these uh reoccurring events while we study yeah you know, th- this um uh, Whole, the the whole entirety of this subject of Shakespeare or De Vere w- was the author, and, and you know, maybe De Vere is writing about things much earlier than what the academics are saying Shakespeare wrote. So, That's it, a, it can, yeah, which okay. is what
2: you talked about with Ramon last week, by and large, right?
1: Yeah, a, a, a little bit, but we didn't get into yeah. uh, the plague. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, but can, can you tell us a little bit about yeah, the, the uh, plague outbreak from the difference between the plague outbreak of 1606 and the one in 1590?
2: Well, I'm not an I'm not not an expert on the difference uh, or the severity of different plague outbreaks. I know there were serious plague outbreaks, you know, often in London. And you know, as a sidelight, if you ever look, if you ever read up about, you know, sanitation during the Elizabethan and Jacobean times, I mean, the fact that everybody wasn't killed is kind of amazing. I mean, it, it's just, it's just it, it, it is a testament to, you know, how healthy uh, a number of people are and how, how incredibly uh, good our bodies are, at least many of us, at, at uh, evading and avoiding deadly diseases because, you know, people had no idea of sanitation, They had no idea of germs, uh, you know, and they were pouring raw sewage out into the streets. Man, I, I mean, you know, it's what, I, I often say to people just as a sidelight, like, you know, if we could go back in time uh, and, uh, you know, found ourselves plopped into London in, you know, any year, whether it's a plague year or not, you know, in 1590 or 1600, whenever it was, I think our major uh, reaction would be shock at how absolutely filthy uh everything was and that would also lead to you'd be terrified that if you got any kind of wound or disease that there was almost no medicine that could help you at all so if you got sick uh you better pray to you better believe in god and you better pray to that god for that god to deliver you from illness because uh, you couldn't rely on anything else to deliver you. I, I, and it, So I just think we'd be shocked at how absolutely uh, uh, primitive conditions like that were, you know, all the way up and down the line from the poorest, poorest people out in the country towns up to uh, the, the people in the great palaces. You know, the sanitation was horrible all over the place. Anyway, so you know, the point is that, yes, there were frequent outbreaks of plague, and it was uh, one reason... That the kings and queens uh, did what's called a summer progress. Every year, they leave London and they go out into the countryside and they spend two or three or four weeks at various estates of you know very rich noblemen who had to entertain them. But one reason they did that was to get out of town uh, to avoid uh, d- uh, the plague or other epidemics that might be raging. And so the and, uh, theaters would be closed when there was a serious outbreak one of the things that one of the immediate repercussions was that the theaters were closed because they were gathering places for large crowds of people you know it wasn't that they didn't want people you know enjoying themselves it was that they wanted to disperse crowds for the reason of not spreading disease
1: yeah and yeah you know, you're- co- contributing author for that chapter you know, I did mention i uh, don't okay it really wasn't plagues that closed the the theaters so some did go out of business because of bad management so oh, yeah there yeah. there's that going on a, a, as well, and you know that seems to be kind of like an urban legend in the Shakespeare studies as well mhm
2: yeah well and, i i I'm just saying theaters what I meant was theaters would be closed temporarily. You know, oh yeah. Outbreak out of the plague, they'd be closed for a few weeks or a few months, but then they could open again. But yes, other theaters were closed uh, due to bad management. Other theaters were closed, I think, because a lot of the city authorities, you know, did not uh, approve of the theaters, you know, because they were gathering places for prostitutes and pickpockets and petty thieves and things like that. You know, not to mention sometimes the uh, uh, scandalous nature or controversial nature of the plays that were being shown.
1: And you know, I think the fellowship's leading voice is probably, I, I I would say Alexander Waugh, and it, it, yeah, he presents a a, a lot of fascinating uh, documentation. And it's really surprising how much survives, and he draws our attention to, uh, you know, there are newspapers and there, and there's like a, a a guest book from the uh, banqueting house that uh, still survives, and I I, I, I guess he uh, must have gone through it, uh, but there's no record. Of Shakespeare attending that uh, that play that that night, but we we know who at least thirty five of the people were who, who did attend. So it, it is, yeah. You know, your group has really gone out there to uh, uh, search. Through almost every surviving document to well, we, extract all, information.
2: Well, we've we've searched. There's a lot more to be looked at. I don't think there's any question about that. But uh, but by the same token, what's interesting is that for the last 150 years, people have been looking uh, just as uh, assiduously to find any kind of document that relates to William Shakespeare of Stratford. You know, in the most recent document that actually uh, pertains to him, I think, was discovered around 1900, and that was when he gave a deposition uh, in a lawsuit in London that involved two other families. It didn't. It, it said nothing about his uh, writing career or his acting career or anything like that. He was he'd been a boarder in a rooming house, and it was just about a dispute between the owner of the rooming house over a dowry between the rooming house family and a, another family but uh, William Shackspur Stratford was a witness in that particular case and that's the most recent document that has been discovered uh, you know that pertain that uh, has a uh, signature of William Shacksburg of Stratford on it um, if you want to talk about ab what we haven't found okay. uh, Which gets into what I said earlier at the top of the show. Really, you know, much of the case involves the interesting question of absence of evidence, and what can you draw from the fact that there's an absence of evidence? Bearing in mind, of course, that 400, you know, all this happened 400 years ago, and that some documents are going to get destroyed or lost, you know, and we shouldn't expect to have a full picture of anybody's life, you know, from that long ago. But in William of Stratford's case, first of all, there's no evidence that he was ever received any education. If you read most biographies of William Shakespeare they say he went to the grammar school in Stratford. Some say, will say he received an excellent education at the school in Stratford. In fact, there are no records from the Stratford grammar school at the time of his boyhood. So you cannot say that he did or that he did not go to school. There is no evidence that he did. Um, there is no evidence that he ever wrote a letter to anyone. And this, in my opinion, is pretty staggering because there is evidence that he was an accomplished businessman and that he spent part of his life, certainly in London, uh, working in the theater, and that he also spent part of his life back home in Stratford, attending to various business interests, You know, buying and selling land, Um, interests in land and, and leases and stuff like that, and lawsuits, and blah, blah, blah. So the fact that there's no letter from him about anything, it doesn't matter whether it's a literary question or whether it's a business question, no letter or even a reference to the existence of a letter from him is pretty amazing, especially when you consider that in something like all but two of the plays, They mention letters, and letters are, you know, common features in the plays, because how else are you going to communicate with somebody who's not face-to-face in the room with you when you don't have, you know, 400 years ago, there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no internet, there's no Skype. Uh, You don't have much choice in how you're going to communicate with people. Likewise, there's only one letter that was ever written to him, and that was from a Stratford neighbor asking him about the possibility of a loan. It has nothing to do with anything literary at all. Nobody ever dedicated a uh, written work, nobody ever dedicated a poem or a book or a play to William Shakespeare, and yet at the time, it was common for all those writers who certainly knew each other to dedicate works to each other. That's the way the business worked in those days. You dedicated stuff to your friends, and Mm -hmm. likewise, they would reciprocate. Uh, When Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, Shakespeare supposedly is at the height of of his creative powers. Dozens and dozens of of poets write poems, you know, lamenting her death, you know, saying what a great monarch she was and how we're going to miss this, you know, guiding light, et cetera, et cetera. Who's silent? William Shakespeare of Stratford. When King James becomes king in 1604, Shakespeare's, according to the the, the, uh, traditional theory, Shakespeare becomes in effect a court poet because we know that King James liked a lot of Shakespeare plays, because there's records that a lot of Shakespeare's plays were shown uh, for King James's royal court. And yet in 1612, when King James's first son, Prince Henry, who was the crown prince, the guy who was expected to succeed him, when he suddenly died at the age of 18, of illness, and again, fifty or sixty po- po- poets, you know, wrote uh, laments about Prince Henry's death. Who's silent? William Shakespeare writes nothing about it at all, and yet he's supposed to be the court poet at the time. And to me, the single most damning feature of William Shakespeare's biography, known biography, is that, uh, as you probably know, he had three children one of whom died at age 11, but his two daughters survived him, you know, well into adulthood. Uh Neither of his daughters could read or write. And yet, in Shakespeare's plays, think of all the women who were shown reading books or writing letters, and Shakespeare, the author in his works, doesn't make a big deal out of this. He doesn't have a female character who says, oh, I can read, let me show you what I can read, or let me show you that I can write. Shakespeare, the author, takes it for granted that his female characters are, by and large, not all of them, but most of his female characters, are able to read and write. And yet, Shakespeare, the human being, doesn't seem to think it's important that his own flesh and blood learn how to read and write. And to me, that disconnect between the known biography of Shakespeare of Stratford and the biography that you would expect to find from the author of the Shakespeare works. The disconnect is so wide that you've got to at least raise your eyebrows. You've got to at least say, "What is going on here? Why? Why? Why did this happen?"
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent point. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, you, know, you make a uh, convincing argument about. Uh, you know, we're talking about two different people yeah. and, 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 and Catherine's, uh, you know, Shakespeare suppressed book. And she, yeah. she, she, talks about, you know, Michael Drayton, Drayton, uh, he, yeah, really did. He, he was from Stratford as well. You know, he right. did, didn't have anything to say about, uh, palling around with his, uh, yeah. you know, uh, friend from the hood
3: yeah, and yeah. even,
1: uh, mm-hmm
2: speaking of Drayton uh Shakespeare's own son-in-law who was married to his uh older daughter Susanna th- uh, who was a physician named Dr Hall he kept a diary and he wrote in his diary that he treated that excellent poet Michael Drayton and yet he says nothing about his own father-in-law and as far as we know neither of Shakespeare's daughters who you know lived for another few decades and even Shakespeare's granddaughter who lived until 1670, none of them are ever known to have mentioned their father or grandfather. Well, if he was this famous guy, how come, as far as we know, they were completely silent uh, about him? And as you say, nobody in in Stratford-on-Avon, nobody in his hometown is talking about him as this accomplished writer and poet. it's just, you know, it's a, It's very, very strange. And I think any honest Shakespeare biographer has got to at least admit that this is very, very strange. You know, getting back to Shakespeare's daughters being illiterate, the common response to that is well, don't forget that schools were only for boys. You know, I know that. And certainly girls were not able to go to school at the time. But nevertheless, you see a lot of instances, particularly when you look at wills of uh, people who would become successful in their lifetimes. And by the way, one of our people has looked at about 3,000 era wills from the time. People did make arrangements for the education of their daughters, uh, if they had young daughters at the time of their death, or their female grandchildren, uh, to be educated. Because people, you know, realized the value of being able to read and write. It wasn't something that was trivialized. and, And people thought that this was... Uh, good for many people thought that this was good for women and girls to be able to read and write as well. So uh, uh, it, it's uh, it, it's it's a very very puzzling situation to say the least, and leads you to the uh, to doubting whether William Shakespeare of Stratford is the same person as the William Shakespeare who wrote all those plays and poems. Now we've got to connect the two. Because certainly in 1623, when uh, the first folio was published, you know, that's the, the first collection of uh, Shakespeare's works, you know, 36 plays are all put together in one big book. Excuse me, I was just having a sip of water there. I don't want to get hoarse. Um, when that's published and uh, the, the material in the front pages from Ben Jonson and, so and from some other people certainly seem to suggest uh, that this is uh that they're honoring William Shakespeare of Stratford on Avon, and that's the same time that the monument is erected back in Stratford on Avon, which you know uh purports to be uh commemorating Shakespeare of Stratford as the author. But you mentioned Alexander Waugh just a few minutes ago and Alexander <laughs> Waugh has done uh, some incredible detective work uh deciphering what those um uh, introductory pages to the folio are really telling us, and also what the monument uh, to Shakespeare in Stratford-on-Avon is really telling us, and I w- would like to plug Alexander Waugh's YouTube channel as the best place to study that further, because I don't think we have enough time to really go into it tonight, but I do want to plug that heavily, because uh, Alexander Waugh's got some great, great insights into uh, uh, cracking, cracking some of these uh, uh, secrets.
1: Well, Alexander would ha- have a feel for this subject since he also comes from a literary background.
2: Exactly. Yeah, he's the grandson of Evelyn Waller the novelist of the early 20th century.
1: Oh it's. Uh, I have to work on getting him to make his debut on on, on Nightlight. He's he's um it, it, an impressive speaker i really uh l- like his uh he- heritage. I just really an amazing person but uh,
2: yeah, he's a good and he's a, you know, as you just said he's a good speaker and he's done one heck of a lot of research mm-hmm. and he's also he doesn't back down he doesn't uh <laughs> uh he doesn't uh, have much respect for the uh, traditional view and he's done an awful lot. Really deconstructing the arguments about the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. You know, they claim that all those buildings in Stratford on Avon, you know, are all this is Shakespeare's birthplace and this is the school where he went to and this is, uh, you know, Anne Hathaway's house and so on and so forth. That's all built on a house of cards. You know, they are built on shaky legal foundations and law has shown that most of uh, what they're talking about is really based on myth and tradition and that there is no evidence that any of these that most if not all of these houses are, are uh, authentically the real thing at, at all or that they were inhabited by the people that the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust you know says they were inhabited
1: by and, and you know, Alex we have oh approaching uh, 11 minutes left but it, You know, as um, you know, we've had Catherine on on a couple times over the last year, and uh, Ramon as well, as recently as last week. You know, we've gotten into this, you know, uh, know, maybe a little bit more so with Catherine, these uh, two clearly distinct personalities that emerge from you know the plays and you know what the academics usually say and 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 what and in a close reading of the sonnets it was like j- just two different personalities uh you know leap out at, uh from the page H- how do you think that this like Shakespeare person who seems to have had a uh, connection to the Globe Theater, but it's not proven that he was the writer, uh, author of the play. He was just uh, – had uh, like uh, a financial interest in the Globe Theater. But how did he uh, become the face for – the, the uh, place. Yeah, what's your theory on that?
2: That's a that's a very you know that's a very very good question, Mark, and I'm really glad you brought it up because uh, I was just thinking about the same thing myself. Um, we don't have Oxfordians. I don't think have a complete theory about when and how it happened. Uh, the and I will say I think we're mostly agreed that. William Shakespeare of Stratford did get to London. There's, I don't think there's any, there's no question, but he got to London sometime in the 1590s when he would have been in his uh, late 20s. He certainly was involved with the theatrical community there. I think that's most, most everybody agrees on that. Exactly what he was doing uh remains uh, more difficult to answer it's not clear that he was involved as an actor it seems clear he may have been involved in the management side of the, the theater he may have been involved as certainly as a money lender because he was involved in, in a money as a money lender in other parts of his life and you know actors are always desperate for money you know whether it's the 21st century or the 16th century so that would that would stand to reason i think i think he was he was put in there early on, and the name Shakespeare begins to appear on two poems in 1593 and 94, and it begins to appear on plays in 1598. Um, I think he's involved almost from the get-go as a what we would call today a front man, somebody whose name can appear on the title page and who, if there's if any... Uh, stuff hits the fan he's the one who can be called on the hot seat to be questioned about something or if somebody needs to uh uh, be identified as an author he's the person who 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 can be so identified and i think in exchange for doing that he got two things he got money and he got prestige the money that he got uh, is sort of documented in his known biography because in 1597 97 or 98 he suddenly has enough money that he can buy the second biggest house in Stratford on Avon and you don't make that kind of money from writing plays or from writing poems or even from being a part owner of a theater so suddenly he's come into substantial amount of money uh, by the by the end of the 1590s that enables him to become an established property owner back in his hometown. And later on, a few years later, he buys even more land. He's a pretty extensive landowner by the time of his death. The second thing that he gets, bear in mind, as everybody knows, he was a commoner. But in, again, 1596 or 97, uh, I think that's the year, he, he finally gets a coat of arms for his family. So he becomes, in those days, he's known now as Will Shakespeare Gentleman. You know, and that was another, that was another rung up from just being a common person. It was kind of the lowest rank above being a commoner, but it was something. So uh, in that class conscious society, he suddenly got a little bit of class. I think those were the two things that he got out of uh, this deal by allowing his name to appear on on the works. Um, that's the... That's the best answer I can come up with, you know, is it, is it coincidence that his name uh, has so much other import, you know, shaking a spear, you know, and and compare a spear to the quill pen, you know, is, is the author, if it's just a pseudonym, it's a very, very good pseudonym, even if it's not tied to a real human being, you know, will, through my will, You know, I am shaking a spear in my own way. I am writing, you know, I'm writing powerful words. So was the fact that his name was so close to the pseudonym that the author already had in mind to use, was that just one of those amazing coincidences? Uh, I don't know if we have the answer to that question yet.
1: Okay. Uh, It's, I, I've really been intrigued by this t- subject for um, probably about 30 years, and it it it, it never gets old. Uh, there's just if you read more of, about it, uh, there there is just so, so much that you know. You, you group your group is putting into place to make us uh have a better understanding and and we're still looking for other information yeah. in the you know the musty documents and some you know the dungeon of some castle it, uh, what's something that you, know, you think w- we really need yeah, j- just that one uh will or that well, one piece of evidence that's uh
2: that's that's another that's yeah that's sort of a fantasy question, right?
1: ah uh, yeah, a little bit. You know, it's so, just a, what's that one thing we need to uh, end all the debate?
2: Well, is there anything
1: I, like at at uh, Headingham Castle where
2: well, no, I think that's been gone over to, you know, tooth and nail. Um you know, there certainly are a lot of things that are in private archives that have yet to be discovered. People are discovering new documents, you know, of all different kinds, not just having to do with the the Shakespeare question. But, you know, there's there's a lot of documents that, you know, have not been transcribed and probably haven't been looked at by anybody in in centuries. So there's the hope that something else will turn will turn up. I suppose, you know, the holy grail might be to find a uh you know, a manuscript of a Shakespeare play in Oxford's hand. You know, okay. that theoretically could exist, although I doubt that it, that it, it would still exist. Another great document to find would be a letter from someone saying, "I knew them both. I knew Shakespeare of Stratford, and I knew ah. and I knew Edward De Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, the great writer." You know, if you could find that, that would be the holy grail. But I suppose it would be dismissed as a, uh, you know, modern forgery by the uh, uh, English departments. But you know, I don't think uh, we should keep our hopes up that some magic thing like that is going to happen. I think what's going to happen is just, it, you know, it, it's an incremental buildup of of more and more good scholarship on our part, our part, and continuing to question. Uh, the The reflexive theories that it has to be the guy from Stratford, uh, you know and the, and it's out there now. The toothpaste is not going to go back in the tube, you know, despite uh, what Jane Shapiro might wish. you know uh, it's out there. A lot of people are certainly aware of the existence of an authorship question. They don't know you know the nuts and bolts about it, but they know that there's plenty of people who doubt that Shakespeare Stratford is the author. And there's more people who are aware of that now than were, say, even ten or twenty or fifty years ago. And I think that's a real, real good sign.
1: Okay. And Alex, we're down to about uh, the last two minutes, uh, ninety seconds. Uh, you know, to, you know, could you give us uh, you know, your website and you know, yeah. the dates of the conference again, please. Yeah.
2: Again, my the uh, my organization it's www.ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org, it's uh, www. shakespeare, excuse me shakespeareoxfordfellowship.org it's one word shakespeareoxfordfellowship.org we are the only american organization uh that uh, advocates the case for edward devere as the uh, uh real shakespeare our annual conference is going to be at the mark twain house and museum in hartford connecticut starting on Thursday, October 17th, ending on uh, October 20th. If you go to the website, you can find out information about the conference, and if you want to go see a very entertaining show, go to Keir Cutler's one-man performance of Is Shakespeare Dead? at the Mark Twain House, Saturday night, October 19th.
1: All right. that's uh, Alex, uh, it sounds like a great weekend. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this was a great discussion, and you know we're gonna to have to do this again and just keep uh, plugging along, looking for m- more evidence and developing these theories. I, I,
3: okay.
1: Just, uh, yeah. Uh, b- best of luck to you at, at the conference, and uh, uh, we'll keep in touch.
2: All right. Thanks very much, Mark. Good to talk to you.
1: All right. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye, Alex. Bye. Bye. Okay. Barbara, how'd, how'd you like that? Interesting stuff.
3: I thought it was um, very, very interesting. Really cool yeah. um, cool person. And, and <clears throat> you know, I've often wondered, you know, it, after reading Catherine's book, you know, and I, I will admit I am not as much of a scholar on Shakespeare as I would like to be. I'm not a scholar at all on Shakespeare, actually. but um, But it makes a great deal of sense. That, that De Vere wrote most of the stuff because I, the one thing that he didn't bring up was the only, um, that I know of, the only um, signature of Shakespeare that they have on record is that on his will, and he misspelled his name twice. So mm-hmm. the Oxford man. So, you know, it does bring into question if he couldn't spell his name, how could he possibly have written all of those beautiful words? But, you know, the one thing that nobody has brought up that I will insert into this totally academic thing is, you know, the most beautiful writing I've ever read was that that was channeled. So let's let's put another theory out there that quite possibly this man could tap into and channel um, an amazing author on the other side that wrote all of the material, and that would explain why there is such a great amount of it, why it is so diverse. I mean, I'm, I mean, you you may giggle at this, but it's a very big possibility because, uh, frankly, I don't write poetry, but when I channel, I do. So that so that this
0: person
3: may have may have been. Been able to touch into another dimension and draw all of the material from there. Just a thought.
1: The creative
3: process. Uh,
1: the creative process is fascinating to study as well. Hey, uh, you know, uh, we, we do have our second guest with us. Uh, producing isn't my forte, but uh, yeah, I, I can do enough to
3: you find get, get Rick? the guest
1: on. <laughs> Yeah yeah, okay. we found Yeah. Um yeah, let's see. Let's get to Can you hear me now. Yeah. Uh, along with the uh crickets. Yes, I do have crickets. It's
4: it's a very loathsome place out here. Munich Cricket.
1: <laughs> okay.
4: I'll
3: it,
1: leave you uh, to it, Mark. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh yeah, we we have uh always an expanding audience so I have to get to um, you know, the bio uh, You know, uh, Sugar Lives has been uh, working out three times a week with uh, Brenda and he's her, her personal trainer he's super Oz able to leap tall petroglyphs in a single bound rescue damsels in distress and kittens and trees and a- admire Mandy too. Um, <laughs> you uh,
4: forgot Diver and a
1: uh, few other yeah, weird things. Uh, uh, yeah, that uh, yeah, that just doesn't sound like the guest form I was sent. Um wonder why that showed up. Uh, I, 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 I
4: uh, Back channel correspondent. It's uh, probably a little in a you know, court case or
1: something. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, we'll have to get Alex on uh, on this case, and he probably studied that at uh, Boston College. But uh, anyhow, um, yeah. Our, while I try to figure out where that uh, bio came from, um, I'll just read. The uh, the other one I had prepared is uh, you know, Rick Osmond ha- has been a longtime friend and gave me the nudge to venture into writing. Uh, we had a great time collaborating on Rick's TV show, The Oopa Loopa Cafe, and Rick is on the board of advisors of Ancient American Magazine, and he is the author of the well-respected uh, – Historical study, The Graves of the Golden Bear, Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley. Eric, how are you?
4: I am well. Good. Um, uh, other than one thing, and since you mentioned the book, I have to go into this. The okay. book is new copies of the book are no longer, not currently at least, available. Um, Amazon has used copies for
1: only $128. Okay, well, uh, hopefully we have a few uh, rich listeners who w- wouldn't mind.
4: Yeah, I, I don't yeah. make anything from those, but yeah, go for it. Uh, <laughs> we are working We are working on uh, a new reprint, actually a whole new publisher with the same basic book. In fact, the original file, but we have to make some changes because, well, the old publisher does not exist anymore.
1: Okay, and – Rick, you're uh going to be speaking at AAPS next weekend. That's October. We f-
4: Saturday. Yes, I am.
1: Yeah, 4th, 5th and 6th. I at least I got that uh they they uh right. So yeah, you're going to be uh yeah, you've written about uh you know, the ancients uh water routes from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico in Ancient America magazine, but you're also going to be uh, co- covering this in your presentation. So uh, what time period are we looking at that the that there is uh, basically uh, no portage, between the Great Lakes and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh,
4: this is better than conjecture, but it still requires some more research. So, take that as a caveat. Um, we're looking at a period between 4,500 years ago and 3,500 years ago. Okay. For about a thousand years, there was a water route that did not require portage from Isle Royale to. Uh, Poverty Point, Louisiana, and I'm, I'll detail exactly what that route was.
1: Okay, so so th- this is part of the ancient copper t- trade, yes. going back to like starting uh, six, six over six thousand years ago. So yes.
4: Okay. But the high Traffic, the high extraction rate, the the millions of pounds of copper came out during that1,000 year period. Other than that it was mostly just float copper that was picked up and hand carried
1: okay so it, it, yeah
4: yeah but I, I show it as a timeline and you can also take it as the same time this same thousand years was the biggest bronze Age era in Europe and Africa and well far western Asia so uh there should be some correlation there now there's there's certainly correlation time-wise chronologically but is there correlation of that copper came from Michigan well yeah maybe a little bit that's not really what I'm talking about this time I'm talking about how did they get it to the southern coast so
1: okay you Once they got from Michigan, you know, one of the destinations is to Poverty Point. What are they doing there with this amount of copper?
4: Well, they're processing some of it there as uh, you know what I would call portable artifacts, but you know, bells or bracelets or. You know, earring ear loops, whatever nose loops, fish hooks, but most of it, to my uh, my own research satisfaction, was formed into what we call oxide ingots of copper, and shipped elsewhere. And I I think we will eventually see ample evidence that it went to some of it went directly into Turkey from you know the Pillars of Hercules. Probably took the northern route, but I can't prove that yet
1: okay and yeah you know, to uh, but buttress what you were just uh saying when he, you know, heard you on uh cat Hobson's show the other night, and it, uh, he uh he had brought up that that there were uh some ingots found in Israel uh, recently uh, can yeah. Yeah, we, those we
4: say that... yeah uh, there were 10 ingots um, and the, the spectroscopy determined and this was laser ablation spectroscopy stuff that I used to do um, it showed pretty clearly that this tin originated in Cornwall England Corn- Cornwall Britain Mm-hmm. England is a late effect, but um,
1: The southwestern 3, 000, corner.
4: Y- yes, pretty, uh, near Land's End, specifically. Um, and and it's very much uh, accepted that that's where that tin came from. But if that tin showed up in, you know, this neck of the woods, it would not be as accepted. So, yeah, it's a big deal. And, and it's not just in Israel. It was also in Greece and in Turkey and and a couple other
1: places. Okay, so it, since Cornwall is, you know, probably one of the nearest points in the British Isles to America, um, yeah. it, is uh, yeah, is that some I- I- indication of the uh, transportation routes
4: well yeah uh, that's and that's why i said that i think i think there's strong evidence that they took the northern route for a lot of mm-hmm. um probably to take advantage of the gulf stream you know because it you know helps propel a boat um well about three thousand miles and it's also closer to a great circle uh short route so there you go Everything came together real well. And the tin being in England mixed with the copper that would come from North America would make bronze to fuel the Bronze Age in Europe. That's the that's the going story here. And part of my the very opening of my presentation is I make a list of the things that we're going to use as premises during this presentation. And that's one of them. We believe the copper went elsewhere. Okay.
1: And – yeah uh... – I haven't uh I haven't been to uh Poverty Point um I've been reading about it it's uh a central uh trading destination for the archaic uh people I mean this is a place of um, profound importance mm. in America's you know uh, uh, prehistory um,
4: I, I, like, I have to believe that it represents to that period of time what Gotham Chicago represented to the United States in say 1900 oh no it's
1: just made, it, it, a yeah, lot of importance
4: central trading point for everything. And think about it. All all of the grain commodities were traded on the Chicago exchange.
1: Cattle. For,
4: yeah, everything. Everything was traded. Anything that was portable and uh, had value at a central trading point. And for that period of time, that was poverty point. That's my contention at least later on it was Camokia, but it was you know a lot later on. It, forty one forty five hundred years later.
1: Yeah, and, and we start having these mounds built. Uh, it's actually a huge mound complex that you know just kind of kept radiating from you know Watson Break and Poverty Point. Uh, well, all across it, it, the it, landscape. But what I
4: find very pertinent is that uh, three thousand years ago, Poverty Point was a a group of seven concentric earthen rings around a central uh, capital, if you want to call it that, chieftain's place. I don't know. It's more than a chieftain. There's too many people that are involved. Watson's Break, on the other hand, is 800 years older than that. So was it continuity? It's kind of hard to tell because we don't have any archaeology for Watson's Break. What we have for uh, Poverty Point, though, is pretty interesting. We've got in excess of 4 million portable artifacts have been gathered so far. And there's a good 40% that's probably not been touched. And and they're strange because we've got everything from thumb size to fist size, fired clay effigies. Many, many of them are human head effigies. And we've had all kinds of guesses of why this is happening. And the most common one among archaeologists is, well, this was a heating stone to to throw into your soup and, and heat your soup up in a skin bag my retort is if they could do fired clay heating stones they could do fire clay pots and um, we don't find those there so there you go okay (laughs) not in the numbers. not in the numbers at the head for the fire for the the heads um however they're almost always found away from what we think is the habitation area so Kinda kinda hard to interpret. But the number of rings is also uh the same as what uh what was that guy's name? Yeah, you know, wrote about Atlantis. Plato. And yeah, that guy. He said it was seven concentric rings of different metals, including one called Orochellum nobody's really been able to identify. Uh huh. But he had and bronze down just fine.
1: Okay. Very interesting. So, with, with yeah, we were uh, t- touching on that a little bit last last week, and yeah, you still get uh, um, well, about the same time. Um, you know, the uh, book of Daniel has uh, that one statue with the. Bronze feet or something like it's like made of different uh, like so, so the statue is made it, of seven different uh, layers and yeah you, know, you know there's some metals that's all about the same time period
4: yeah well roughly at least we we don't have a great time period on the book of Daniel but um, we also had some very real world highly um, well documented giant bronze in particular statues, uh, mm-hmm. the Colossus of Rhodes being the most prominent, but right. only the most prominent maybe, and maybe the biggest, but even that's in dispute nowadays. Um, and it was assembled from the dropped weapons of a vanquished army that came calling it Rhodes and got driven away. So,
1: w- w- work with... Oh, oh all this transportation going on between the great lakes and um, stopping at uh poverty point in northeastern louisiana and you know, then then the trade uh trade winds taking you know uh, uh other ships across the atlantic to uh Cornwall and other uh destinations say road island of Rhodes, uh, and other other destinations in europe um ha- have we found any uh canoes or th- ways that barges uh you know the means that this amount of uh raw materials were transported
4: well we have the we have a few examples of canoes typically from a thousand years ago rather than four thousand years ago but we huh. can end the design is probably roughly the same and this would be the incontinent you know riverine craft that moved the stuff from the great lakes to poverty point and they'll be typically about 30 to 40 feet long five feet, six feet wide, um, payload of roughly 4,000 pounds in addition to crew and food, crew and uh, provisions. So 4,000 pounds of payload. And my guess is for most of that 1,000 years, you could make that one-way transit in about four weeks in the summertime. In the wintertime, you could not make that transit at all. So, You had about four or five months that you could do this, but you could do it, you know, two or three times in that four or five months. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had, (laughs) if you had say a thousand of those boats doing four trips a summer, carrying four thousand pounds apiece, you'd have a pretty good payload of copper or whatever you were actually carrying.
1: and this went on for a thousand years. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know due to going back, you know, that far in, into antiquity, ha, ha, have there been any uh, uh, molds that uh, survived?
4: Well, we have a couple of contenders. Uh, one at uh, Fredericksburg, I believe, is where it was. Fredericksburg, Tennessee. We found, they found a mold in the ground, basically, and some evidence of vitrification of, you know, like hot metal being poured into it and molding the the or burning all the soil into something almost crystalline. Um, hmm. The other one, there, there's a good possibility at poverty point, but on the opposite side of the river of the existing ruins. So it's kind of interesting. The river has meandered right through this thing in the last 3,000 years, 5,000 years. Uh,
1: I I, I don't want to interrupt you.
4: Well, there are a lot of possibilities, but the two best contenders in my opinion are Fredericksburg, Tennessee and Poverty Point. Okay. And the one at Poverty Point was found by uh, Jay Wakefield and uh, I believe it was Rich Most but I don't recall. Okay. I it,
1: think it was Rich. Okay. I mean, he, he, I'm sure he is uh, h- hot on the trail of something that w- wasn't uh, these uh, molds but have to get him on and ask him but um
3: yeah.
1: you know we've uh been talking about uh, you know a lot of the how the uh, ancient peoples were moving uh north to south and and you've also been uh researching how Uh, goods were transported from the south to the north as well as east. Uh, I I assume that they were probably using some type of uh, cargo ship as well.
4: Um, And sailing technologies, almost certainly.
1: Yeah, there's some kind of naval engineering, and you, know, you yeah you would be knowledgeable about that. But you know there was uh, you know products coming from uh, South America as well, you know, uh, and you know, you're saying that uh, s- s- some of the cocoa uh, leaves were found uh, up in, in Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin type
4: cocoa leaves, cocoa as in oh, the co- cocoa bean. That okay. You'd make chocolate out of today. Back then, okay. they were making a, a drink out of it, and and uh, yes, there are at least thirty-six different sites have had the same earthenware with the same contents tested out, and it's slightly different concentrations, but same contents, and it is remnants completely consistent with this cocoa beverage, fermented cocoa beverage. What's interesting about that is. The ceramics are all the same. It's like a branded product from a different country coming in its own packaging that everybody's going to recognize. Kind of like the Coca Cola bottle went all the way around the world and everybody knows what it is. Um, The other thing is, much like Coca Cola and little known to most Americans, it is a perishable item. So was the cocoa. It had to get here pretty rapidly for it to be any good to sell it has an expiration date well it has a shelf life put it that way um so that means that the transportation itself was rapid enough to cover in some cases a couple thousand miles in a matter of eight to ten weeks what yeah yeah like that From, from at least the tip of the yucatan peninsula to the upper reaches of the mississippi river
1: Okay, so your specialty in what what six seven years of your uh, ancient fortresses articles in Ancient American magazine have uh, focused on a a lot of the uh, inland water routes. In eastern and uh, you know central portions of America, you know, giving us you know a really nice uh, background this evening. About all all these ships going up and down the Mississippi River and so, so many other uh, rivers. You know, you've been focusing on uh, you know the Wabash River in Indiana. It's you know part of the Ohio River drainage. It, If we get off, uh, you know, take a detour from the Mississippi River into some of these uh, 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 tributaries, you you know, what what is your research uh, disclosed from, say, say the Wabash River?
4: Um, Well, let's start with all these rivers. Everything that feeds the Mississippi used to be. Moving a lot slower and be a lot wider, since everything in the last two hundred years has pretty much completely changed the face of all the rivers in North America. Um, say, four thousand years ago, this period of time we're looking at for moving the copper, the rivers were languid. That's the best best word I can use. They flowed, but they didn't flow swiftly. And they weren't so turbid that you couldn't see through a glass full of it. Um, I, it's just, and, and the foliage, the foliage along the banks was constant. That, In fact, in the upper Midwest, that's where all the trees were. The rest of it was prairie. So the tree roots and the grass roots and all the foliage kept those muddy banks from ter- turning it into the big muddy river it's only after we started farming it the way we farm it that it became different so that is a background all of the wabash which today is not navigable sometimes you can't even get a canoe through it um a hundred years ago it was they had steam ships or steam boats actually that traversed at least two-thirds of the length of the wabash on a fairly regular basis and then about yeah about 115 20 years ago that ceased because, well, they just turned into a series of sandbars. The Ohio River, it has dams and locks and stuff. And it is also a shallow river, but it is now a a series of big, deep pools along the riverbed um, managed by the Army Corps of Engineers. So when you see the rivers that we have today, it's not the same rivers, it's just in the same place.
1: And you know you've given us uh, some really I- insightful information on, like, the, you know, there was an economy of prehistoric America. Uh, it, it, yeah,
4: it, was know, a, it was a vast and extensive trade network. Uh, let's let's go with poverty point. Okay. Poverty Point, of course, was, at, in that time, it was on the seashore. It was at on the Gulf of Mexico. Nowadays, it's 75 miles inland because, well, that much mud has moved down those said rivers. But at the time, it was, you know, the Seacoast Trading Port. And incidentally, it's uh, still all about 60 miles from the only exposed rock in the entire state. Uh, Wolf's Head Cave is name of that place it's an interesting spot but well i digress poverty point had trade goods from well wolf's Head cave and from the yucatan and from even down into bolivia and uh ecuador and it had conch shells as a local commodity well they're dead now you can't get them in louisiana much but um they were prolific then and they were traded you know all the way up into canada uh, Wyoming, everywhere. They, they went up to Nova Scotia. They may have gone up the Atlantic coast for that, however. Uh, they had obsidian mined from what is now Yellowstone National Park. They had silver mined from Nova Scotia. Uh, they had, um, wow... We don't know all of the perishable items that probably went there. We can make some guesses, but we don't have enough resources to test everything and prove it. Uh, But I'm pretty sure that you had dyes or dye products for dyeing fabrics coming from all over two different continents, maybe more than two different continents. You had animal products, feathers, furs, meat. Uh, claws, you know, anything that they needed a specialty for coming from all over two or maybe even three continents. Uh, you had every form of deep water fish available within, you know, a couple hundred miles of the shore. Um, yeah, it was a thriving and vast economy. And it had a hierarchy. Yes, they, they did have a hierarchy. Everybody can't. All of academia seems hell bent on framing this as a religion. Well, I suppose you can frame it that way if you wish. But it was a hierarchy, and whether it was a priesthood or uh, ministers or uh, premiers or whatever you want to call these particular people who are the elite, yeah, they're they're the top cast. But so much more of the civilization was utilitarian than what academia seems to want to portray. So, I don't know, maybe I should just leave that at that. Okay. Well, Does that help?
1: I, yeah. I, it's just uh, interesting to hear an expert talk about you know, the this economic base that was he, here when you know, Probably a lot of people uh, may have the impression that it was basically a hunter-gatherer culture, but yeah. as, as time w- went on, yeah, you yeah, know, you also uh, do uh, talk about in in the Grays of the Golden Bear that uh, uh, America was also attracting. Um, spiritual leaders like uh, Saint Brendan. Yes.
4: Yeah. And and possibly a whole bunch of others, but Brendan's tale is at least documented a little bit. So. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the,
1: yeah. The na- uh, yeah, The names have changed, like uh, Island of Paradise or what. Uh, whatever term he used. Yeah. yeah
4: fortunate. I- what the the Romans called it too
1: yeah but uh, you know when you look at what he uh, wrote about with the crystal castles okay and, and obviously he's talking about icebergs and you know the whales you know he's uh,
3: de- describing everything
1: yeah. accurately as you would go across uh, the North Atlantic uh, ocean yeah. to from The
4: sky, the, the same thing that got Pythias called down by his peers was burning rocks falling from the sky. But mm-hmm. you lose past Iceland pretty much any time in the last couple thousand years, and yeah, you, you're likely to see burning rocks falling from the sky. So, um,
1: it if um, in America, you know, America, what maybe had a reputation of I don't know, economics, some spiritual aspect, uh, why do you think uh, Brendan got into you know, a small boat and you – know, a smaller boat than what the uh, you know, uh, natives were using on you know, their uh, canoes? Yeah. And um, it, why, why what, what, what was he actually, doing here? He was proselytizing.
4: He was trying to spread the word of Christ. I don't know that he was here long enough to actually accomplish it. However, there is a lead-in, a a pretty strong lead-in, I might add, and it has to do with a guy, the late Robert Pyle. Um, I'm pretty sure you're aware of Robert's work, Wyoming County, West Virginia. A
0: little
1: bit familiar with that.
4: Yeah, over what, almost two decades, he investigated a bunch of apparent ogam writing and eventually found a skull uh, that was close enough proximity to be considered in association with the ogam writing. The skull was tested for both uh, C14 to get a date and for DNA to get an ethnicity. And it came back as seventh century, early seventh century AD, and um, Irish. <laughs> so there you go. And the Ogham writing was identified, uh, it was accepted as Ogham writing, Irish Ogham, by a supposedly expert in Irish Ogham. So we'll just go with that. Okay. So, it's- Dickson,
1: I'm sorry, he's gone. And aside from you know, the Irish Ogham writing, you're also covering that there are stone box graves in southern Indiana that closely resemble the construction of uh, similar mortuary uh uh, yeah, in uh, pra- yeah. Wales. Uh, can, can, right. can you tell us a bit? Like, yeah, you know, there is, seems to be plenty of evidence to show that that all of this uh, transatlantic crossings was going both ways for thousands of years.
4: Well, yeah, the the stone box graves. They're called stone box graves in the United States, and they're not just Indiana. It's like from up your your way, West Virginia um all the way into Missouri, all the way along the Ohio and many of its tributaries. But the they existed, the that practice was used from about um 480 AD. This is the earliest, and this is not conjecture, it's C 14. I have to actually have to go retrieve some of that report for somebody who's also investigating it. Up to about 880 AD and the time span changes also um, some other aspects of the burial practices Uh, in the very early ones there were no artifacts buried with the body Uh, not even bracelets or you know necklaces none of the more common copper items of later times or earlier times and later on you know somewhere in the mid 7th century, 7th century into the eighth ninth century They changed and started putting stuff in them, uh, earthenware, some of it with holes already made in it, much like the Mayan practices, except that they didn't have a, you know, a a big hole in the ground to throw it all in. Um, So the the stone box graves that were in Wales were also uh, in in similar time periods had no artifacts. Uh, Unfortunately, they also had no bodies because, well, it was so acidic of soil that they all went away. Um, they were able, the scientists were able to date other organic materials that were in the graves and uh, and got the dates that we use as well, simultaneous with what was going on here. Um, some of those stone box graves were for seven footers in Wales as well as here. So there you go.
1: All right. And if uh, listeners are enjoying what you have to say, uh, you will be presenting parts of this, uh, you know, what, what we've been discussing at your, during your presentation next Saturday. Sorry. Right? Uh,
4: a week from this coming Saturday, yes, on the sixth or fifth, I guess it is.
1: Yes, yeah, Saturday, October fifth. So, um, what's yeah? Uh, if people want to know more about it, uh, what's the website?
4: Uh, the best website is aapscopper.org, uh, and you can register there. Or you can call 906-942-7865. And this event is being held at the Island Resort Casino Convention Center in Harris, Michigan. And uh, the phone for the hotel lodging reservations is 906-602-6040. And they have a great uh, hot tub and pool because it's no chlorine bleach. It's, It's salt. I love this place.
1: Okay, and there's uh Earl Mesh Meshode, uh is going to be uh talking to and what well, there's a, a a trip out to his Potawatomi uh center of um, Yeah. Yeah um, uh yeah you were out there last last year. Uh, yeah, that looked pretty interesting. Uh can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Sure, the the cultural center or Earl because they're both pretty darn interesting.
1: But Okay, uh, this uh, is do do both.
4: Yeah, okay. Well, we'll start with the casino is part of the property, part of the reservation uh, for this uh the Hannibal uh band of the Potawatomi tribe. And The name Hannah goes back to a very specific person who kind of helped save the whole family line. Uh, It's better to hear Earl tell the story, but Earl tells the story uh, at the cultural center when, when you can catch him there because he's a pretty busy guy. But the cultural center has everything about this particular band and how they survived over the period of almost 200 years. Uh, trying to coexist with, well, white men and uh, trying not to get screwed out of all their lands which they're doing pretty good and I'm proud of them. But the cultural center has cultural items and uh, costumes and baskets and stuff that they've made and it has um, also some items that are the property of the AAPS, but on display in their cultural center because well they share the vision. Um, interesting, uh, out of out of place artifacts in the cult in the AAPS cabinet. So the the event, the cultural center will be open for visitation on Sunday afternoon, the sixth. I will not be present for that when I have to head back and, and attend to other. Immediate duties, so okay. so be it.
1: Okay. Well, it's, um, it's it sounds interesting, and yeah. Uh, so, so there are some out of place artifacts associated with the Potawatomi tribe. Well,
4: no, uh, only the only real association at this point is that they're willing to house them for us. Oh, okay, but uh, and you know some of their stories share aspects of the stuff that we believe. Well, like I was saying, we believe most of the copper went elsewhere. It's just so be it. And at the corresponding times. I'd love to come back and talk for a couple more hours about this, but at the same time, all the copper was leaving there. There were these pyramidal-shaped buildings going up in Egypt and elsewhere. So. The copper chisels wore out rather quickly, just saying
1: okay, uh that sounds like if we had some more time uh so, so it sounds like we could uh make a segue into that uh mysterious uh subject about uh, quarrying stones but uh yeah,
4: the, the whole. Saturday um, roster, if you will, since we only have, what, eight minutes or so, the whole Saturday roster kind of forms around this whole copper trade uh, this year. It doesn't always, but it does this year. And I'm batting cleanup for that whole round on Saturday. Um, Jay Wakefield, uh, you know, he's, he's always got copper and bronze on his mind. Um, we got a guy talking about specifically about the copper trader. Another guy's talking about the gardens in in Michigan, and now there are a few more we've discovered. He's discovered, but, yeah, lawn. Yeah, lawn they are or- they are absolutely industrial grade and production rate gardens. You know, it's, they're feeding bunches of people. And doing it in industrial fashion, um, you know those people that are on the rivers or those people who are mining those people who are wielding the one million hammer stones found around the mines um, and then Earl's coming in to talk about the the center, and uh, after that, Carl Hinck is going to talk about DNA evidence and population replacement in Europe but uh, in the period of five thousand to four thousand B C then I'm gonna talk about the copper that was moving at that same time basically. So it's all connected. That's how yeah. we work.
1: Yeah, uh lawn's very interesting. Uh indeed yeah yeah, yeah you have to feed all those people. Uh yeah you know, they aren't yeah you know, they can't all eat uh Fish,
4: yeah they can't they don't have time to forage. they're out there beating on rocks and stuff yeah
1: yeah, uh yeah they yeah they need uh some people to you know, grow the squashes and you know make the food for all the workers and uh, you know lawns information does fit in with what everyone else is going to be discuss, and uh, that and you get ron's uh macintosh stone and you were talking about the you know you using uh copper tools to uh, you know quarry the stones uh for the uh, pyramids but you know you have to wonder about um you know, the the kind of tools that were used to make uh you know carve the hieroglyphs and the uh macintosh done, and, and and that looks like um yeah they were using some kind of ancient dremel to make th- those hieroglyphs i don't i don't know uh where they got That's
4: the my opinion only but yeah i think you've hit on it they had a way of powering a rotary tool it was probably human power don't get me wrong but they did looms why why couldn't they
1: you know yeah, I, I, I uh, he, he sent me some photos of it. I I just don't know how you, you you get such fine detail on like a pebble the size of like a a little bit larger than a quarter. Uh, I, it's uh, amazing artistry.
4: Well, but you had had a very similar. Well, we're going to run out of time on this one. You had a very similar. Um, uh, feature a uh, set of artifacts that was found in Michigan, and they are individually carved tiny stones, inch to an inch and a quarter across, and each of them has a unique symbol on them. It's part of the Matisse Lodge stuff that nobody outside really knows what it is, but we do know what it is. We don't know what it means. And been at least two different caches of them found in C2 now, and no two stones are exactly alike. So I don't know it, whatever tools they were using. They were using it on both sides of the
1: Atlantic. So there you go. Cool stuff. Okay, and yeah, you know, with uh, you know this diverse group of people uh, getting together, you know, you, know, you did say, say that. Many of them are going to show the interconnectedness of you know the copper trade. Next uh, next week we're going to be uh, talking with a uh, Joan Conover about the um, ancient canals in, in America. But you know, what, you know when you go to to these conferences, you, you know what do you that is, is accomplished uh by all these people getting together is it making things more confusing or uh getting people to think what you know, what's your it, response to all this information
4: well my my response is not the same as everybody else's your mileage may vary um, it gets people thinking the the best thing that can happen at those conferences in AAPS in particular is that we get a kid because you can see the wheels turning and whether they actually pursue it in early life doesn't matter to me because they will be thinking about it for the rest of their lives. So there, that's, that's the seed I'm throwing there. Okay. um, Yeah.
1: What, what's uh your next project you know we we still have like 7 minutes left or so uh, you know what what are you working on next after you come back from the conference uh
4: well in in regard to what I do for the the field of archaeology i am going to try to get a reprint publisher for my book i'm already in conference with one I think we can pull it off. Um, I have been working on another book. I have hope, still have a little hope, of getting it to the publisher this calendar year. Uh, it's entitled The Seer and the Oracle. Um, and it's about line-of-sight communication methods used pretty much all over the world in ancient times. Um, I'm also going – I'm still writing for Wayne. Ancient American magazine, still currently on the west fork of the White River here in Indiana as my target area, because there's so much of it and and I've been around it all my life. Um, It cuts down on the travel expense too, you know. Um, Let's see what else we are. Oh, I'm I'm working on uh, starting a new band. I had had not discussed that with you, had I yet? Uh, Not yet. Starting a new band. Uh, going to do tribute band kind of thing. But not just to one person. We're going to tribute a bunch of the front men of the 50s and 60s. So, you know, there'll be everything from Elvis and Johnny Cash to Roy Orbison and Jim Reeves and whoever else we can throw in there. Uh, Johnny, some later too.
1: Johnny Rivers.
4: Yeah, yeah. There'll be some Johnny Rivers, too. Um, oh. Yeah, that period, that, to me, that's one of the best periods for the music that I love. Um, and going to try to do that in time to have a gig by Halloween. So.
1: Okay. Is uh, uh, Brenda going to join us for the last couple minutes to put in her
4: two cents? I don't know. Perhaps. I don't know. We'll
1: see. She's invited. If she's listening, I guess. Um she makes a quick quick appearance. I should have said something when she came in, but.
4: Anyway, yeah, plans. We got somebody, I was in a conversation with a good friend of mine the other day, and he said, I lost my train of thought. And I said, on which of the 93 tracks? Because I've got that many, too. Yeah. (laughs) Multitasking takes many forms. Yeah. uh, Yeah. too many tasks.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm not very good at it. The uh, yeah, just having the show notes in front of me and producing isn't uh, one of my specialties. But that's that's why Barbara does an excellent job of coaching me. At, 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 at some point, I might actually become somewhat professional at it. But yeah, I'm, very efficient. Just, yeah. just,
4: know. You're
1: there. Yeah, it's, you know, it's people like uh Brenda and Mandy who get get me distracted, but
4: yeah, you know, <laughs> I know that feeling
1: <laughs> So So uh it, anyhow, you know, we're uh down a few more minutes. Uh is there anything else you want to plug at it's you know, the aapscopper.org uh, is the website for you know, for, what
4: the it is- for, the, for the event yes and um you know i don't even have the information in front of me for what it costs for the event but judy will be happy to fix you up the i'll, I'll talk about the room for just a moment the room yeah. is at the at the casino um the last, last year we could seat, I don't know, somewhere around 150 people, and, and we kept it, you know, not brimful, but it was pretty good turnout. Um, good projectors, good sound system. Um, Dana runs everything great for the technology end of things. Uh, the food is top-notch. It's, it's not cooks, it's chefs. Um, uh, you can buy meals as a separate package. Um, you can go gamble. You're, if you check in at the hotel, you get like a five dollar coupon set for playing games. Um, they also have bands in a couple of the bars, they have, have good food too in, in the restaurants. Um, I, I really like the casino. I'm not a big casino person, but I like this one. They had a great architect. Um,
1: are there going to be DVDs available?
4: Uh, yeah, and the co- yeah and and there are also DVDs available from last year um, I do not know the cost on those but yeah they're available through the same I believe the same uh, website aapscopper.org. Copper um, org you can get the whole set uh, you can get like two or three speakers on a disk and or you can get the whole thing
3: Um
4: Friday night, I believe it is. There's a sing-along kind of social networking thing. That um, gives you a chance to people... uh,
1: practice with your band.
4: Yeah, I won't have the whole band there. Yeah. I may not even have a guitar there. I did last year, did a couple songs. But anyway, yeah, it's it's fun time. It's not all work. It's fun time too. And the networking thing is big. you know what are you going to investigate now? Oh, hey, I can help with that uh, Hey, do you know this guy? Have you read his stuff have you know have you seen her presentation on rocks that talk to you
1: and oh, by the way, they do okay. um,
3: what
1: when, when uh you. Yeah, you're there. Everything is pretty much just located in one one building. So it, you know, you, you can get to the casino. There's the the hotel and conference yeah. center. All it, it's all centralized.
4: Yeah, and, and all, about all the speakers, I won't say all of them, but about all of them have books or something to to offer for sale. And they they also have a silent auction and a bunch of other stuff to raise money for the organization. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 pretty nice place. It's that's in a separate room too. Okay. And uh, there's,
1: how there's, how much is, is uh seating capacity is there? It seemed like a, last year it like, seemed like it was a pretty big room.
4: Yeah, I I think it's about 160 people, but there was there was still some room left, just no chairs. So they could have brought in another 30 chairs or so pretty easy.
1: Okay. And you said um, that there's a, a good sound system as, as well. And a PowerPoint yep. presentation uh, is clear to. Yeah. See. And, and they'll,
4: what they'll do is they, they run a live presentation, typically 50 or 55 minutes, and they'll run a five minute. Uh, question and answer period. Pass the mic around the room, and whatnot, because it's cool. all being recorded. They want to hear the questions too. Okay. Um, and then uh, later on, after you know, after everybody speaks, including me, Saturday night. Well, same thing, Friday night. They're going to have a panel discussion, and uh, everybody who has sit there and listened to us drone on all day can, you know, get a turn at saying. So let me get this straight.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, Rick, speaking of joining on, uh, Barbara says we have 10 seconds, so I just want to thank everyone for listening, and thank you for uh, being our special guest, and we'll see everyone next Tuesday.